relative energy deficiency in sport or REDS. It's been a big topic. It's one we've covered in various aspects over the last few years, and it's one that certainly caused a lot of buzz, but also a lot of concern about athletes worried about some of the consequences of that in terms of things like fertility, in terms of injury, in terms of illness, and so on. Today, we are talking about what's new in the area of REDS because the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, have published their updated consensus statement around REDS towards the end of 2023. So we wanted to have a look at what's new in the area of REDS, what the research is now saying. Are there some things that maybe we've been overly concerned about? Are there times where low energy availability that might put you at risk of REDS is actually okay? Where is the science at with this and what's maybe coming in the future in terms of research around REDS? Hello and welcome to Fueling Endurance, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. And on today's episode, we'll be talking all things REDS, in particular what's new in this area in the last few years with our special guest, Professor Louise Burke from Australian Catholic University. But before we get to that, this episode of Fueling Endurance is brought to you by the Fueling Endurance ebook. This ebook provides comprehensive written articles covering the contents of the first two years of the podcast. At over 260 pages, it's packed with practical tips and suggestions, tables, diagrams, and flowcharts, as well as stories and quotes from expert researchers, nutrition practitioners, coaches, and athletes who have been guests on the podcast. Each part of the book can be read as a standalone article or as a section of articles on a specific topic. It provides an invaluable resource for the runner, cyclist, triathlete, or coach seeking to improve their nutrition game and addresses 49 of the most common questions or challenges that they face. Everything from what should I eat before my long training session to why do I cramp during exercise and is low carb right for me? There's also bonus videos to step you through some of the most technical diagrams in the book, which you can access via the QR code included inside the book. The Fueling Endurance ebook is now available from our website, fuelingendurance.com, and now also available for Kindle via Amazon. The sales of the book help support the cost of running this podcast, and we really appreciate all the support. Also, if you want to get practical sports nutrition news, tips, and tricks delivered directly to your inbox every couple of weeks, you can join the Fueling Endurance email newsletter. It's completely free, and you can sign up at fuelingendurance.com, and that's fueling with one L. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook, or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X, or contact us via our website, fuelingendurance.com. So it's good to be back, Steph. Hope you've had a good break. I've certainly had one back for 2024. Much more podcasts to come, but we're going to get stuck right into this one with Professor Louise Burke. So Louise is one of the most renowned and respected sports nutrition researchers on the planet. She is the godmother of sports nutrition in Australia and has spent multiple decades at the Australian Institute of Sport working with and researching elite athletes and particularly one of her main focuses was elite endurance athletes competing at Olympic Games. Louise has contributed 
to the 2023 International Olympic Committee Consensus Statement on Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, which is an update. It's the third update to this consensus statement. So Louise has kindly joined us to run us through what's new in this consensus statement. It's five years since the last one in 2018. So what has happened since then? Where are we at? What's our understanding of REDS at now? And what's happening or what's on the radar for the future research as well? So really excited to have Louise back. She was our guest on our very first ever podcast, episode 1A, Is Low Carb Right For Me? She'll talk a little bit about some low carb stuff in relation to REDS, but the focus very much today is on REDS and the nutrition aspects of that. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it. Louise Burke, welcome back to Fueling Endurance. Pleased to be here. So the podcast has just turned three years old now and we're lucky enough to have you as our guest on the very first episode, 1A, back in November 2020, is low carb right for me? This episode has been one of our most popular. So what has kept you busy in research in the last three years since that show? Well, I think we've probably done Supernova 5, 6 and 7. <laughs> We're um, chasing after the Fast and Furious. So more work with the, the race walkers. Some of our research has been on low energy availability, not just the low carbohydrate availability. I've moved to Melbourne. I'm working now at ACU and we've got a whole long line of research. We're doing something at the moment on ketone esters and recovery after cycling looking at electrolytes and sleep, post-exercise, all sorts of things. There's so many questions in sports nutrition. Uh, There's just a matter of time and funding to um, get them done. And we've got a lovely new present from ACU with a metabolic chamber. So that'll be 2024's big dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so for for listeners who might not be aware, a metabolic chamber, I guess, is a way of being able to measure energy expenditure but without having to have the mask attached to you the whole time. So you can move around and do different activities or shift from one activity to the next and sort of capture what's going on. Absolutely. It's it's just right having a VO2 max done for 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess our topic today around energy availability is probably one of those prime areas where this will be really helpful. Yes, um, we've got all sorts of ideas of the kinds of studies that we can do because the new red statement from the IOC around low energy availability is really challenging us to think about it in a more complex and nuanced way where not every energy availability exposure is going to be the same and it's going to hit different people and different body systems differently. So we need some kind of way of being able to have more complexity with the way that we do our studies and if we can use the metabolic chamber to contrive these different exposures to low energy availability and be able to get you know really close data on what's happening and the time frame of, of how it's happening, then we may be able to start differentiating between what's just normal life, benign, adaptable to what's causing the problems. Yeah, yep. So just let's go back to um, a wonderful time that you recently had, which was the New York City Marathon, which wasn't all that long ago. And we know it's a bit of a tradition for you to go over there and run it when you can. 
I heard you did very well, third in your age group, Louise, and, and still doing a very impressive time. So does it just keep getting better for you? I guess that's the only good thing about getting old is if you get less decrepit than your age group, <laughs> then you get better. And I really, I'm just loving running at the moment. It's funny, I'm not getting that much slower than, than I did. I've never been a great athlete, but when you don't get slower, then you start ageing into being a better athlete. And so got on the podium this time. Um, I was a bit disappointed in the time and was because it's a, you know, the scrap running with 50,000 people, that's the fun running with 50,000 people. But the not fun part is that there's 50,000 people to run around if yep. they're in the way. And, you know, so you, when I started and you're sort of hitting slower times just because of that congestion than you think you can run, it's frustrating. And then I just decided not to worry about it, just run and enjoy it. So when I got to the end and, and my time wasn't that bad, but it was third of my age group, well, then there was, you know, lots of celebration. My goal's always been to get to that last six miles when you're running around Central Park and just soak in all the people that are there to support you. It's just the most wonderful thing. And I have done it a few times. Like I've probably done it eight or so times. But last year when I went to do it, and remember we'd had two years of being locked out of travel with COVID, and I got to the race and felt terrible on the morning and um, tested positive during the race and I had to stop. So, <laughs> so that disappointment was was uh, you know was I've forgotten it now that I've had a better better race. Yeah, 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 nice. But I don't run the crazy distances you do, Steph. I you know the marathon's just enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've been a bit slack on that front, so I have to lift my game and and try and run marathons again. So yeah, well, come back and do it with me one of you. It's so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will, I will. I've watched it there, but I haven't actually run it there. And so, yeah, today we wanted to talk to you about the new Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports Consensus Statement. What's new or, or changed since the last statement in 2018 and what the consensus team really want, I guess, the athletes to know about it? So we've had both sports dietitians and researchers, Margot Rogers and, and Bronwyn Lundy on the podcast, which um, is where we talked about the consequences of underfueling for, for training, which was back in episode 24A, and then nutrition roadmap to recovery for REDS, which was back in episode 57A. So we discussed how to define adequate fueling for training, what happens if you underfuel, how do you know if you're eating enough and how an athlete can start the process of recovery from underfueling and more specifically REDS. So REDS was first introduced and recognised as a distinct entity by the International Olympic Committee in a 2014 consensus statement, which we just said was updated in 2018. And here we are now at the end of 23 with another update. So um, people know the IOC in terms of, I guess, organising the Olympic Games, but how does the IOC kind of get involved in issues like this one? Well, that's a good question. I think the IOC <laughs> has a number of values apart from just promoting excellence and, and holding the Games that celebrated. Um, it's very concerned about a lot of other values around inclusivity, around health, 
around special populations and it likes to use its outreach to try and pick some of the topics that are problematic within sport and that can be around bullying or around the representation of females or I'm just trying to think of some of the other areas in which it's got either expert bodies or consensus statements around and this was an area that we thought needed broadening at the time we were involved the IOC was trying to take the female athlete triad work and trying to convert it from sort of less American-based, I guess, to the more international flavour. And when we did that in 2014, I think the concept was let's recognise that the triad hadn't included males and we were seeing representation of males amongst the groups that were appearing to suffer from the consequences of low energy availability exposure it also wanted to recognise special groups such as Paralympians, people from different races, etc. And it also wanted to broaden the range of possible consequences that were recognised as, as perhaps being an output of um, the low energy availability exposure because the triad was really heavily focused on female reproduction or menstrual function and bone health. And so there were a whole range of other different body system dysfunctions that were being recognised and we wanted to broaden it. And at that stage it was very much just thinking about it as a concept and we probably put it down on paper thinking this all sounds good and, you know, sounds there's plausible information about it, which is after all how the triad started its days, you know, being an observation of this interrelationship between things to do with eating and exercise and body function and dysfunction. So... We thought about it as as a collection of ideas and principles and there was a bit of pushback from that from people who felt there wasn't enough science behind it, that they felt that the triad issues of, of bone and, and menstrual function had been better described and that the information around males wasn't as robust either. And so there was some pushback and what we've tried to do since then is really think about what's the scientific justification for what we're saying, number one. And so that was updated in 2018. But I think what we've tried to do this time is really try and make sure that the science is very much at the forefront. And the other thing we're trying to do is to add a bit more nuance to it because one of the things happens in any area of sport is that you recognise something and people come up with a kind of catchphrase or a um, bubble of information that describes it and then suddenly everybody's got it because you know some of the symptoms are so universal and i can think of you know iron deficiency when when we first started being able to measure ferritin and started thinking as ferritin as a measure of iron stores suddenly every athlete in the world is iron deficient and then every athlete in the world was vitamin d deficient because of the way we were able to recognize new metrics and measuring things and so you know we do worry now that there's a misunderstanding that some of the things that people are measuring and thinking are, oh, this is a sign of reds, are really not being well understood. And it's particularly difficult when you're working with something. We, we know that the bottom problem or the, you know, the, the, the cause of everything that we're worried about is low energy availability. So it's the mismatch between energy intake and the amount of energy that's being expended in exercise, whether it's training or competition. And what's happened is there's now 
not enough energy that's able to support all the body functions for health and and performance. And so something has to give. And we can explain that. We can set up an equation that describes what that means and we can set some sort of numbers as to what we think might be a normal number associated with good energy availability and numbers that seem to correlate when system dysfunction is appearing. The problem is, though, that when you differentiate between measuring something in a lab where you've you've influenced it, so you've instigated some kind of a, a manipulation where you've changed energy intake or you've changed any expenditure according to these numbers, and so it's all done on a very standardised way and it's measurable and you can look at the impact, that's different from taking free-living people and saying to them, just write down what you ate and what you did for a week and we'll assess what the energy availability of that was. And the problem is, as we know as dietitians, it's almost impossible to measure what people eat because people change when they're asked to report on it. And even if they're truthful about what they did eat, it might not reflect what they normally eat that's causing the symptoms that we see in them. And then the same thing goes for exercise energy expenditure. It's really difficult to measure that in real life as well. So when you measure things and you're measuring them poorly and then you're trying to equate that to something that's been seen in a very contrived and very meticulous situation and say that the things are the same, that's where you run into the problems. And so one of the probably downsides of giving publicity to to REDS and energy availability is that people who work with athletes and are well-meaning and they're, you know, they're obviously trying to help, but what they do is, well, let's have a look at our athletes and see what what's happening with them and whether it's a group or whether it's an individual. They'll do some of the measurements that I've just described to assess energy availability in that population. And more often than not, it will come back as low energy availability, below the numbers that we think are normal or think are healthy. And then we've got the situation where people say, oh, we've got reds everywhere. You know, 80% of this population's got reds. So no, reds is a diagnosis of the dysfunctions that can occur with um, problematic low energy availability. And measuring low energy availability is fraught with error, so we don't um, recognise it as a way of assessing someone's true energy availability and certainly not for diagnosing REDS. I think it's really important that you have um, an assessment from a dietitian, but it's not just for that. And a dietitian who might try and do those calculations of what energy availability look like has to be really clever at interpreting it. You know, sometimes what you see when you do those assessments is not just the numbers of energy availability, but it's the patterns of eating, the clues that suggest that this person has a disturbed relationship with food or this person doesn't have enough time in the day to eat enough for the training that they're doing or this person has not enough nutrition knowledge to know how to fuel themselves. So the assessment is going to pick up things that are probably more important than the numbers of the energy availability assessment. So that's the first thing. The second thing we're trying to think about is why when you give, so let's go back to those studies where it's actually done really carefully and it's contrived and we can measure what happens when you expose people to a certain low energy availability. 
you find that there's just differences in the way people respond. And that's because we're all individuals and we all have different ways in which our bodies respond to different stimuli. We know that in every everything we do. But when we start talking to people outside sport about this phenomena that people can um, have a reaction to energy scarcity, there are other groups who have knowledge in this area, and one of the groups is the evolutionary biologists because they tell us, well, that's been our history as humans. You know, back in cave days, we didn't have three meals a day and everything lined up in supermarkets to help ourselves to. So, you know, in most of the years of our being, humans have had to face energy scarcity and they had these pockets where they had a lot of energy and pockets when they didn't have a lot of energy. And so one of the reasons that we're successful as a species is that we've adapted to being able to handle that. And it's a bit like what happens with your own money budget. So if you've you know, got a lifestyle and you're earning this much and you're spending that and then all of a sudden you lose your job or a bill comes in that was unexpected, you have to say to yourself, oh, things are out of whack. I'm going to have to change things. So you stop spending on some stuff so that you can just get yourself back to, you know, trading normally, I guess, if you like. And our bodies do that and they can look at what's sort of non-expendable. You know, there's just things you have to keep doing if you want to stay alive. You have to keep your heart pumping and certain things happening. But there are other processes in our body that we consider are things that we can reduce or things that we can just forget about for a short period of time. And that changes from person to person. And even in the same person, it changes over our lifetime because of what is important, you know, to keep us and, and our ability to reproduce going for that for that period of, of our lives. So we're now trying to think more with more nuance around energy availability exposure to say that for some people in some scenarios, some energy availability reduction is not going to be a problem. It's look, we all wake up in the morning probably with low energy availability because we've gone, you know, 12 hours without eating. But we haven't died overnight. We've 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 slowed down some of our metabolic rate and we've done few things and if you go a couple of days with low energy availability then there's an adjustment but a lot of our processes are able to just to kick back into um to their normal function once energy is restored and so what we need to do if we're going to really get to the bottom of the problem is to try and differentiate between times that are what we are now calling adaptable low energy availability so it's these short periods or it might be just a, a small reduction in energy availability. We're thinking about all the different characteristics that you could describe energy availability exposure in because we think that maybe there's a difference between whether you reduce energy intake or increase energy expenditure. Like the numbers might work out the same in terms of if you did the assessment of what energy availability score it was, but it was contrived in a different way. And there may be some differences with how the nutrient, macronutrient, balance within the energy that you are eating goes. Um, we think that part of what drives some of the symptoms of low energy availability is low carbohydrate availability because we see them in our keto diet people when they're consuming enough energy but not the carbohydrate. And there may be differences in how you spread it over the day. Like there's some studies that show fascinating things that people that do all their exercise in the early part of the day 
but then eat all their calories at the end of the day, on average it might balance out, but they have a different metabolic profile to those people who more evenly use energy and, and supply it back to the body as they go. So there's so many different features of how that energy um, flux might occur in our bodies that may have different outcomes, that we need to be more thoughtful about what's problematic. And it could be for one body system, this is fine, but for another body system, that's not good. And so we need to be, I think, more complex with our thinking. The other thing we might think about is that there are other factors in our bodies that might make us more resilient or more susceptible to the low energy availability exposure. So, for example, you might have um, better genes and others in terms of bone health. You might have vitamin D deficiency that's complicating bone health as well. You might be doing bone loading exercise, which is protective, whereas another athlete's not. And so rather than just seeing low energy availability is the only thing that's contributing to the REDS outcome, we could say there's a whole lot of other factors that are going to either amplify or attenuate how it is exposed. So what we've tried to do with the new model is to say, here's a model for athletes and coaches that says, here's the simple form. We think that at the centre of everything is low energy availability and in a small way there's no problem. So that if you need to be in low energy availability and if that could happen because you need to change your body composition, you may need to lose some weight or lose some body fat or it could just happen because you're going to do a really hard training block and it's going to be really hard to eat all the calories that you're burning but that's built into your um, program and it's important for another aspect of your performance. So, yes, there'll be a period of low energy availability, but think about what are the characteristics, how severe, how long is it going to be, and then think about other factors. Now, the athlete and coach don't have to know that. They just have to know that there's people, there's professionals that they can go to that will help them examine the situation to see whether this scenario is either in the future or has in the past created these situations where the problems are likely to happen. The risk of problems is increased because of the either the characteristic of the low energy availability or something else about the athlete has interacted with that. And if that's the case, then there could be some symptoms that could be expected. The other thing we've said with this new red statement, though, is that we have to say that all these symptoms can occur with or without energy availability issues. Just because an athlete comes in to see you with iron deficiency, you don't say, oh, that's one of the symptoms of REDS. Wow, you've got REDS. It could be, but it could be just due to not enough iron in the diet. So we're trying to make practitioners more aware of differential diagnoses and allowing a more sophisticated picture to be looked at. So we want athletes and coaches to be aware of risk factors and make good decisions and know when to go and see the professional because the professional is going to be able to be the one trusted to have the more complex view of things and they'll help the athlete either unravel what's already occurred or help the athlete to make better decisions about what they do ahead of in the next preparation because there's you know some things that you could do to reduce the risk yeah 
Yep, no, totally makes sense. And I think you've sort of preempted the next six questions mm-hmm. I had, which is absolutely Sorry. fine. No, that, that, that's fine. So obviously we've got the, the new consensus statement and we were sort of having a look through the other day at, I guess, what are the things that are new or changed or different from the previous one? And I think you've, you know, you sort of captured most of those already. But I guess if we start off with the most simple one, it used to be red hyphen S. Now it's reds with a small S and no hyphen. <laughs> Subtle change, but obviously there was a specific reason behind that, I'm assuming. Yeah, we, we always thought it was reds, like that was the whole thing. And I can remember back at that early meeting, you know, we think, oh, you know, the red card and we we're thinking all these different ways in which red would be really a, a good thing to have in people's minds. But we also thought that maybe there'd be different ways in which we wanted to educate people. So we might have red for sport, so red S, we might have red for military and red for artists I don't know but then people started calling it red s and so people getting confused but the th- you know what the clinched it the thing that made us really go back to the reds was social media because if you want to hashtag stuff you can't have hyphens in it so oh. now we've gone back to making it reds and getting rid of that pesky hyphen so people will say it the same way and we'll be able to hashtag and all be successful with that all right, we've got Elon Musk to thank for that. <laughs> All right. Um, one one I, thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess the other things that have happened, obviously, has been, and I think you kind of described this a little bit already, is that the previous, you know, people will be familiar, it's been sort of publicised and, and reproduced online in different ways as kind of the old hub-and-spoke diagram for the, the REDS model. And, and the one that's now there is still a sort of a circular diagram, still more or less the same concept, but probably... I don't know, more of a, I guess a wheel is kind of hub and spoke, isn't it? But it is a slightly different diagram. Was there a particular rationale or thinking behind why change that original diagram to what it looks like now? Um, The change was to keep the hub and spokes in concept. The way that it's changed is we've now got low energy availability in the middle. I think what was confusing people before was we had reds in the middle and spokes were sort of the dysfunctions and people were not then sure is low energy availability the same as REDS? So what we're trying to explain now is no. Low energy availability is exposure and in some circumstances it can lead to a whole range of problems and dysfunction and a collection of that dysfunction is the syndrome known as REDS. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a relationship that you can oh, – we've tried with the hub and wheels this time is to put like a spectrum or a, a continuum. So – it's only when you get to the outer fringes of that continuum when it's getting more severe that we sort of expect to see some of those symptoms. We've tried to make it colourful so that it stands out and looks different. You don't want to have the same thing that people just didn't recognise the writing in the circles is different. Mm, We've tried true. to yeah, just give yep. it a, a makeover so that people, oh, yeah, this is new, what's different? Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And actually... I'd never even thought of the fact that the old one had reds in the middle. I just assumed Mm. it had energy availability in the Mm. middle. So there you go. Okay. And then I guess the other thing when we're looking at that new diagram is the things around the outside, you know, what's in the the model and and what's maybe been added or or removed from it. Now, as far as I can tell, I don't think anything's been removed, but there has been a couple of additions to the things around the outside of that model. And one, um, one of them was urinary incontinence. Do you want to talk us through why that's been added? Yeah, so first of all, we've tried in the consensus statement to, to say, look, we've got a whole range of things on the outside of the wheel that are possible outcomes of problematic low energy availability. Some have better 
robust evidence of this. Others are newly thought of. And so in terms of the positioning, we put the ones that are really strongly evidence-based up the top. So that's the bone health and the reproductive health. I think what else is different is that we've changed the name so that now all standardised. Before we had sort of like a hodgepodge of some things which describe the system and some things that describe the dysfunction. What we've tried to do this time is just say it's an impairment of and listed the body system in a more standardised way. But one of the new things we've added is the, is the urinary incontinence. And this has been seen in a couple of studies in female athletes. We haven't seen it in males yet. And what we've also added in the consensus statement, some tables where we've tried to put together the evidence of where this system dysfunction has been described in conjunction with low energy availability. So that the tables for each of the body systems say, this is the system, this is the way in which a dysfunction might be manifested. So for each of the things, there's a, a list of the ways in which an athlete might go to the doctor and say, this is happening, this doesn't seem normal. So we've described what isn't normal and then we've described the studies that has been, this has been observed in conjunction with markers of low energy availability, either in athlete or sedentary populations. Um, some of the early studies were all done in people who were previously inactive and so not all the evidence comes from athletic populations, but we've tried to make sure that there's um, some level of scrutiny over where this has been seen. But we've also got another column that says, what's a differential diagnosis? What's another reason for urinary incontinence, for example? And there are more that are not low energy availability exposure than are, but this has been noticed in, in groups that have got other symptoms of low energy availability exposure. So some of the more classic REDS markers have been seen in conjunction with this. And so we're highlighting it so that we're not trying to say that, oh, everything's getting even worse. You know, there's so many terrible things that happen so much as, look, here are some clues that you might pick up to help you know that something's not right. And this is particularly important with some groups who don't get some of the classical symptoms. Now, Males are a good example because they don't have periods. And so for females, if you have a menstrual dysfunction, it can be easy to detect because you stop having periods. And so you think, well, there's something wrong. I'm going to go to the doctor. Males don't get that warning. And so some of our interrogations being to try and pick up any symptoms that we can link to it so that this might be the thing that makes you go to the doctor. It might not even be the worst thing that's going on, but it might be the thing that you notice is not normal and sends you to get the, you know, the proper assessment and, and treatment. And even with females, some females are on oral contraceptives and so they take the pills and then they have these inactive phases and they have a bleed. And some, some athletes think, well, that's my period, but it's not. It's just an artificial bleed that is to do with the withdrawal of the active pill. And so for that 50% of the population who might be taking oral contraceptives, they may not have that clue of, of the change in menstrual cycle that the rest of the naturally menstruating females have. And so if they had another clue like this, this might be the thing that says, oh, that's that's new, that's that's not normal. 
and that's what leads them to go and see the doctor. So it's partially, you know, thinking about what are some warning signs and partially, obviously, you know, something like that. It might sound trivial, but for a lot of athletes, that's really important. You know, if you're a if you're a gymnast and you're you're someone that, that has to appear in a leotard and appear before judges and you know be jumping around and whatever, urinary incontinence is is a is a problem. And you know, we when we deal with a sports in which this can be a problem, you know, we hear of athletes who quit the sport or who won't you know won't do certain sorts of artistry in there that's important for their performance because of the urinary incontinence. So it might sound like just a, just, you know, a bit of an inconvenience at one level, but for some people it is a really life-changing issue and it could be something that's not necessarily neat to happen. So by, by pointing it out as a, a possible consequence of this, we're hoping that some people will, you know, get the treatment they need and there's one problem they don't have. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I'm guessing sleep disturbance, which was one of the other additions to the model, I guess is a similar story. Absolutely. And, you know, now that so many people have got wearables and gadgets that monitor their sleep and they get some information about their sleep quantity and quality, you know, this may be one of the early signs that they're picking up because they're just getting metrics and they can certainly start thinking, well, what's normal and not? And, of course, this is another one where, there are a million other things that can be causing the sleep disturbance, but it can be connected with problematic low energy availability. And so that, again, might be the clue that people think, oh, I should be assessing what I'm doing and getting some expert advice on whether this is right. Yeah, yeah. And the other two that that I sort of picked up on that were, were new additions to the model I feel like these ones were kind of implied previously, but maybe just made more explicit this time. And that was around growth and development and an athlete availability in terms of, you know, missed time to training because of illness or injury or whatever. So they were, yeah, as I said, I think they were kind of implied in the old model, but just brought more front and center this time around. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a health wheel and we've got a performance wheel. And I think the performance wheels where we've also had some big changes because before we sort of had a mixture of some things that were physiological mechanisms, if you like. So one of our previous spokes on the performance wheel had reduced glycogen or something. But that's not something an athlete sees because, you know, you don't get a biopsy before you do your training and get the glycogen measured. But what we've done now is talk about it in terms of what are the ways in which an athlete would see their performance impairment. So it could be a reduction in their power or their um, endurance, but it could be an interruption to their ability to train to their program. So that's what we call um, reduced athlete availability when the athlete can't train at all or has to do a modified training load. And some of the work from Mick Drew at the AIS has shown that, you know, athletes, when you go to an Olympic Games, you can't have afforded to have missed too many of those training sessions that were part of your program. There's a sort of a magic number and if you miss or have to modify your training for sort of more than a, a specific percentage of your ideal program then the likelihood that you'll be able to perform to your best is really reduced and so we've got to make sure that you know athletes have got the ability to do the training as as well as turn up on the day yeah okay there was also in the statement speaking on the topic of training a discussion 
around the concept of overtraining syndrome. And I know there was a great paper published, I think it was a couple of years ago now, Trent Stellingworth is the, the first author who's been on the podcast before, and I know you're on that paper as well, sort of discussing, you know, whether overtraining syndrome and REDS are, I guess, two sides of the same coin, or are they two distinct entities? And it sounds like from the discussion in this paper, and, and obviously the one from a couple of years ago, it's hard to say exactly, but there's probably reasonable evidence that they might be two sides of the same coin. Yeah, there's probably some very common overlap because you can, if you're doing excessive training, it's sometimes very difficult to refuel that and so it creates low energy availability. But there does seem to be cases and studies where people have managed to fuel this excess or greater training load than they've had, but they're still not adapting or they're still not getting the performance benefits that they'd see. So it is an area of, of debate and, you know, there are, are other systems or other ways in which the body can be impaired other than just through low energy availability and, you know, whether there's neural or, you know, different pathways, different other hormonal stress pathways that exist independently of the energy availability one is um, where we need to do more work. But there's certainly a, a strong risk if you are doing excessive exercise that's likely to get into that overtraining area that you're also putting yourself at risk of not being able to consume sufficient calories or carbohydrate to fuel that. And so you may be adding to the burden with the low energy availability. Yeah, absolutely. And it was something that, that we picked up on. I think it was just kind of like almost a throwaway sentence in the paper, but it was something you're talking about the evolutionary biologists before and some of the work that Herman Ponce's group's done around the suggestion that you know the, the human digestive system is potentially the limiting factor to how much you can train in a way because it limits basically how much energy you can extract from food on any given day, no matter how much sort of you, sh you shove down there so to speak mm. and then that might kind of limit that upper that upper end of, of how much training you can actually do that's right so there's also discussion i guess in terms of energy availability versus carbohydrate availability so where's our understanding of this at now because we know you've been involved in some of these studies through your athlete research camps with both distance runners and race walkers? Yes, so it's interesting that quite a few of the papers that have shown some of the symptoms associated with low energy availability have been able to contrive that simply by low carbohydrate availability. So our keto models, as I said, we've, when we've done our um, supernova studies and other studies with keto diets, we've made them energy matched or high energy availability for the reason that we wanted to make the investigation around the keto part of it. And we've seen some impairments of body systems some changes in hormone levels, changes in bone markers, changes in iron metabolism that are all associated with low energy availability. And we, in one of our studies, actually had three groups of athletes, one who had high energy, high carbohydrate, one who had low energy, but we tried to maximise the carbohydrate within that. It still was reduced, but it wasn't you know, totally restricted. And then we had our keto group, which had the restricted carbs, but plenty of energy. 
And we found some of the symptoms or some of the turnover markers that would be associated with the impairment of body systems to be worse in the keto group than in the low energy group. And other people have, you know, found similar findings that it's a carbohydrate availability issue. Now, it's hard to disentangle that because, as I said, it's very likely that if you are with low energy availability, then carbohydrate is likely to be low, but not necessarily totally restricted. And, you know, again, it goes back to how do you contrive the low energy availability? Do you do it by energy restriction or do you do it by extra exercise? And depending on how you do it, you could have, like if you if you reduce your calories, but, you know, if you think to yourself, well, protein's really important, so of the calories I'm eating, I'm going to make sure I still get the protein, then it's more likely that you're going to have a, a carbohydrate um, under-fueling problem. If you're doing bucket loads of sort of low-intensity exercise, so a lot of it isn't really glycogen-intensive, you could be going in the other direction that your energy that you're consuming has still got plenty of carbohydrate because if you have to cut down the energy so much as you've just done more exercise and it may be that relatively speaking you still got plenty of carbs for what you need and so some of our future work needs to try and better tease out where the the differences are coming we can certainly look from the um, mechanistic angle what happens when you've got low carbohydrate availability and we see increases in stress hormones. We see increases in interleukin-6, um, an inflammatory marker. And so you can say, well, that makes sense then. If that's driving some of the problems to some of the body systems and you see it with low carbohydrate availability after one session of exercise, then it's not proof, but it's a good sort of... I guess, circumstantial evidence that might say, well, this is worth having a look at on a a longer scale because short-term it all ties up the story and now we need to see whether when you do this over and over and over again, it amplifies the results. Mm, Absolutely. And I guess it's one of those things that might be a little challenging to study in terms of both the practicalities but also the ethics to a degree of how much can you restrict people's energy availability ethically when you're you have some suspicions that there are health consequences of that. Yes, so look, there's different ways that we need to approach this and we think that doing some short-term studies where you're looking for perturbations of markets, you want to try and stop it before it ends up hurting the system per se, but you can say to yourself, well, normal bone metabolism looks like this. We see these markers changing on a day-to-day basis or these are the kinds of hormones or pathways that we expect to be doing this in terms of bone health or iron or whichever the system is. And a couple of days of perturbing the system either makes it go crazy or not. Now, as you said, you don't want to go to the point, oh, right, now that's good, we caused the stress fracture, so we were were right after all. (laughs) But what you then might do is try and look at longitudinal studies where populations have done things by their own steam, I guess they've voluntarily done things and you've been able to observe what's happened. I mean, that also gets a bit unethical because you might say to yourself, okay, well, these runners went and chose to do that to themselves or these swimmers did that to themselves. And if 
you think that there's a problem, well, then at some point you need to step in and say, we need to stop this right here. But, you know, there are some, you know, good studies that are available where until we get more clarification, I think observing what people do and keeping an eye on it so that, you know, you stop it before it gets to very concerning levels, but being able to see what the outcomes of different ways of, of being able to train or different ways in which people manage things. So, you know, weight-making athletes are a good example that we do everything we try to do to try and reduce the problem behaviour that some weight-making athletes have, have got up to, but there are still, you know, plenty of athletes that do weight-make and they try and choose what they consider the the most effective and safest and within the rules of the sport to do. And if that's what's happening and it's within the rules and people are choosing it, I mean, I guess until you go in and can prove one way or the other that this is harmful or this is adaptable, then we can monitor with concern. And then, you know, once we get to the point where the the knowledge becomes absolutely concrete and there's, you know, no way in which it's now ethical to allow this to keep happening, then I guess, you know, we, we're there to learn. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes to, to my next question, which was around, I guess, our understanding of how severe or how prolonged low energy availability has to be before people end up with REDS. I think you mentioned before that's probably something that might be quite individual as well in terms of yeah. the, the response that yeah. people get. And I guess it relates back to that concept. I know you mentioned it before, but I think it's worth coming back to and and sort of covering a bit more formally was this concept of adaptable versus problematic low energy availability. And I think this is a new concept in the consensus statement this time around. Is is that something that was sort of raised, I guess, in that whole process of putting this new consensus statement together was the fact that, you know, you can have these periods of low energy availability and it's not necessarily going to end in a stress fracture or a terrible illness or whatever versus the problematic and that needed to be really kind of recognised. And so we're not I guess almost scaring people for a lack of a better word into never being in an energy deficit ever for fear of you know developing reds within seven days or something. That's exactly right. It's good. So in so many things in sport and in life, it's there's no black and white. It's trying to find where the acceptable cutoff is and trying to help people to understand that it's not always harmful and we we, we don't want to overreact to things. We want to have people get the right help at the right time. And that, you know, we can help people have, you know, the ability to manage their own lives, but, you know, recognise that some things that we do are risky and some things we do knowing there's a little bit of a risk, but we want to try and stop people who have, you know, much larger number of risk factors from getting irreversible and, and very concerning outcomes. And that's it's sometimes difficult to get that balance right. And I think, you know, even with our, our, I guess, best attempt to try and differentiate between what we're worrying about and what we're not worrying about, there'll still be some people who aren't satisfied that'll say, oh, where's the evidence? Or, But, you know, I just I worry both about not getting in early enough for people who've got problems, but I also do worry about creating fear when it doesn't need to, to be there and you know, creating a lot of stress around things that should be enjoyable in life. You know, we want people, athletes, to have great careers and great satisfaction with the careers that they have and get the best out of themselves. And, you know, you don't want athletes 
fearing absolutely everything that they do, but rather saying, look, everything in life's a, an ex, managing acceptable risks, really, isn't it? And so, you know, no one stays in their house in the morning because, oh gosh, what if I have an accident, car accident? You know, there's, you know, but if you do the right thing and wear your seatbelt and travel at a set sensible speed and all that sort of stuff you know we we managed to get to the other end of the of the trip most of the time so we're trying to you know give people the tools to to know how to make good decisions about what they do yeah makes perfect sense okay so just as we sort of bring all of this together louise is there anything else that that you and i guess the group that put that consensus statement together i guess want athletes or coaches to kind of be aware of or, or know about that maybe has changed or something you think is sort of under underestimated or unappreciated in this area that that you're really keen to get that message out to to the athletes and the coaches about yeah well, look, we'd like athletes and coaches to understand risk factors and to understand that they can go and get really good assessments and advice from professionals who understand this stuff and the complications of it. And we've got, you know, if you ask me a different question of what do you want the um, practitioners to be doing, yes, we've got scientists and practitioners some activities to do to keep adding to our understanding of the complexity of the model. But the message for athletes and coaches is to, to be aware and get the right level of awareness around it so that it's not over-concerning nor is it being underappreciated, and certainly knowing that these are some these are some times when it would be good to go and get an assessment or these are some times where it'd be going like you, you might say I don't even need to have an assessment because I want to go and see my sports dietitian to learn how to fuel and to learn how to manage body composition appropriately and you know if I take care of that and work with my coach on sensible training then that's the primary prevention, I don't need to go any further than that because I'm not going to have these problems. But if somebody's already within a career and they've got to a point where they expect that they've either got some of the behaviours that might be contributing to the low energy availability scenarios, you know, sometimes you don't have to have a symptom. Like if, if you know that you're going into a, I'm suddenly doubling my training load or I'm moving away from home and I don't know how to cook or I'm you know, doing something that's different with my eating and exercise. So this is a risky period for me to get that balance right. So this is where I, you know, need to go and get the, the right advice. Or these are some symptoms that I seem to be having that are different to the way that my body was normally experiencing life or my training was normally going. It's what's different and if it sort of it stacks up that, oh, you know, well, gosh, I've suddenly increase my training load or suddenly you know I've moved out of home and all that food that mum had in the cupboard's no longer there well then yeah, maybe maybe this is contributing to it mm, yeah absolutely all right so we're just going to finish up for a couple of quick minutes Steph's got some bonus round questions for you and I think Steph from what I saw having a look at these these are kind of follow-ups to see what Louise has done since the last time she answered these questions right back in our first episode <laughs> oh no on the it is it is because Louise did tell us that the last time we spoke to you we asked you if you could do anything other than what you're currently doing what would it be you said you'd be living in New York owning a vintage dress shop running New York City Marathon anytime you like, 
So we know that you're running those marathons, but any progress on the rest? Look, I'm visiting those vintage shops as much as I can and I've made the very wise movement of sending my son to college in the US. So he's 45 minutes outside New York. So what I can do now is go and visit him or under the disguise of visiting him, spend more time <laughs> in New York and um, no one's going to no one's going to suspect anything. <laughs> yeah. He's not saying, "Mum, stop visiting me. Stop." <laughs> Not yet. I'm, yeah. I'm missing him, missing him dreadfully. <laughs> <laughs> and also last time, mountain climbing was a sport you mentioned you wouldn't mind giving a go, though the fact that you mentioned that you didn't like heights, you didn't really like sleeping in a sleeping bag, you didn't really like the cold all that much, makes me think that you probably haven't progressed that much into mountain climbing. But am I wrong? You're absolutely right. No, no mountain climbing. I think it'll all be something I listen to when I'm running. I can listen to some of those great climbing books or climbing stories. So I can live vicariously through the um, bravery of others who've been able to manage to like heights and cold and sleeping bags. (laughs) I love the um, documentaries on Netflix with anything climbing related, but I am shit scared of of heights. So I'm with you on that one. do, do you have any traditions of foods or drinks you have before or after running the the New York City Marathon? Like I know you love Hague's chocolate. Is that yes. something that you include pre or during fueling? I eat chocolate all day, every day. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I do eat chocolate most days, but I try and just quality concern now so I try and um, make sure that it's the best chocolate and I really enjoy it and I do reward myself after you know longer runs because you know sometimes you need that incentive of what's going to get me out the door and I think of something that I'm going to enjoy when I get home as the way of making that happen during my runs I I during the marathon I like to be a frequent feeder of carbohydrates so I, I run with a little bag of lollies rather than using the gels and I mean I have sports drink but I eat my lollies every K and I eat them in order of niceness and because <laughs> I have a psychological need to you know feel excited when I get towards the end of the of the runs and so I do that in um, my long runs as well and I plant little feed zones and I don't for every run that I do practice that, but for one run a week as I'm getting closer to the marathon, I do the, the race standard. And um, I just, look, it's partly, it meets the nutrition tick, but it's just also those little psychological things that I like to trick myself with and it works well. Awesome, awesome. Well, we'll um, let you go, Louise, because we know you're extremely busy. But thank you so much for that update. I feel like I've had a PD development day just right there, just just with you right now. So thank you for for the update on what's new. And yeah, I think our listeners will will get a lot out of this one. Well, thank you for being my favourite podcast too. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Excellent. Thank you very much, Louise. I'll hand it over to Al now to summarise. Awesome. So our question was, what's new in the area of REDS? And this really refers to the new REDS consensus statement, which was published towards the end of 2023. Now, there's a few things that have been added, which I think are important to flag here. 
I guess, some extra nuance to the statement, in particular, this concept of adaptable versus problematic low energy availability. And I think this is really important because energy deficits, I think, were sometimes being seen as something that could never occur without any sort of physical or mental health consequence. And there was almost this anxiety that you could never, ever be in an energy deficit or something terrible was going to happen. And so that's, a, you know, I guess a pendulum swing from, from one end of the extreme to the, the other. And now we're sort of heading back towards the middle a little bit with this nuance that, you know, an adaptable low energy availability means that the body will actually adapt to being in an energy deficit to some degree. And that's a normal physiological response that humans have evolved over you know, hundreds of thousands of years because we've lived in an environment for most of that time where our food supply has been hit and miss and we've had to be able to adapt to those periods where we are going to be in an energy deficiency. Now, Louise talked about the fact that with the new metabolic chamber at ACU, there's some new research coming to investigate this further and I think that's going to be really great to see some of the new research in this because it's still not 100% clear how much deficit is too much and is that different between males and females? Probably. Is that different between individuals? Maybe. We don't really know. And so there are very few studies to date on this. They're all in females and they're all generally short term, only a few days. So Louise talked about the fact with the metabolic chamber, they can control things really closely and actually measure the responses to that really easily. So that'll be great to see the research that comes out of that chamber at ACU over the next few years. I think we're going to see some some really good insights happening in the next sort of four or five years. And by the time we have the next consensus update, hopefully we'll have a lot more information there as well. Now, there have been some new additions to the REDS model around the health and performance consequences as these have kind of been flagged as potential issues that come along with REDS. One is urinary incontinence that we talked about. One is sleep disturbances. One is impaired growth and development, which I think was kind of implied before, but not really clearly articulated. And then one is around athlete availability, so missed training sessions because of all of the other reasons there in terms of illness or injury or whatever it is. Now, the final thing we talked about was carbohydrate availability, and there are some signs that carbohydrate availability, in other words, the amount of carbohydrate available to the muscle during exercise, whether it's stored in the muscle as glycogen or whether it's coming in from gels and drinks and things that you're having during exercise, they may be having effects that are separate from low energy availability, but there is still a lot more work to be done in that area before we have a really clear understanding of that. There does seem to be a role, though, of carbohydrate availability, for example, on some of the bone turnover markers, at least in the short term. But what effect this has in the long term is still yet to be determined. So it's a really interesting area. I think there's some more nuance to this now, which is good. Um, but still a lot more work to go, and hopefully we'll find out a lot more about that in the coming years with some more research. Awesome. Next episode hour, we're getting stuck into talking about sodium again. It's a wonderful topic, isn't it? it well, I think it is because it's my area of research. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, everyone keeps asking me when I publish the paper on the five-hour sodium study, which I'm I'm sick to death of talking about my own study on this podcast because we talked about it over the last couple of years as we did the study and then published it. But everyone said, oh, when are you doing a podcast episode about this? When are you doing it? So we're going to do it. We're going to sit down, Steph, and, and talk about that. So our question 
for what will be episode 71 is does taking sodium during exercise improve my hydration because that's one of the big questions that we were trying to answer in the ultra endurance context in in this case five hours of continuous exercise in this particular study so we're going to have a look at that and and look at why that's important and some of the the unanswered questions that we were sort of setting out to answer with this study and, and what we found with that so yeah it'll be really good to, to talk through that it's always good to talk about your own research so you mean that uh, this might help give the answer to the athletes whether they need to keep popping sodium and, and salt pills during exercise? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. This is going to be a hot one then because we know how popular salt tablets and, and pills are. So stay tuned for, for that one. I'm excited for that one too. And just a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at Fueling Endurance on Instagram or Facebook or at Fuel Endurance on Twitter, aka X. And thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have a few seconds to spare, uh, we'd love it if you could leave a rating or review. And remember also that there's now uh, 70 questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but you'll see that we've started answering questions right back from November 2020. And if you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. And you can now get your hands on the ebook through fuelingendurance.com. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know or maybe you want to give them a, a present and provide them with one of our ebooks. Otherwise, we will love and leave you and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Will do. See you then.